Good morning. It's uh, good to be back with you and uh, to continue our, our study through the, the book of Philippians. Uh, as you probably all know by now, the, the book of Philippians was, uh, or is actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to his uh, believers, his, his church in Philippi. At the time of writing, Paul was in prison in Rome and he was awaiting uh, a, an audience with the Emperor Nero. Uh, But before we go on any further, let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your love and your grace. Be with us now as we study your word. Just open our hearts and prepare us to receive all that you would have for us. I pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today uh, we start into chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 11. Now, the overarching theme of these verses is righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. But, as you are going to see, there are some really interesting little points along the way that that we'll spend some time on. So, if you have your Bibles ready, why don't you uh, turn to Philippians, and we'll start reading in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, For the sake of Jesus Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not not having a righteousness of my own that, that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Well, right out of the gate, we we encounter one of those interesting points that I had mentioned earlier. what is up with the finally that, that Paul uses at the beginning of verse 1? This is the kind of thing that, and I think you would agree, that you would normally find at the end of a, of a letter, not when there's still two chapters left 
Uh, so I, I did some research, and I quickly confirmed that, that I am by no means the first guy to ever notice that and have questions about it. Uh, well, in fact, uh, it was kind of like opening a, a can of worms. I, I have two commentaries at home that I use, uh, one by F.F. F. Bruce, one by Gordon Fee. Now, these commentaries are specific to the book of Philippians, and, and they explored this idea of uh, some of the theories that have been put forth as to why that word finally appears where it does. Uh, I discovered that there have been scholars over the years that have put forth the theory that the book of Philippians was actually pieced together from, from other letters, that there was just more than one document, kind of an ancient version of cut and paste. Some other scholars, however, believed it to be the, the uh, work of the scribes who miscopied when they were making copies of, of the letter. However, both of these theories have their own set of problems, and, uh, and they don't do very much to, to clarify the issue. So then I started looking at some other uh, Bible translations to see how that word had been translated. In the, uh, in the NIV, the word is translated as further. In the Christian Standard Bible, it's rendered as in addition. Well, after I found that out, I grabbed my big old Greek uh, dictionary, and, and sure enough, I found that these were acceptable translations for that word. Uh, so, you know, the fact that they're proper definitions, it led me to believe that there's, there's no re uh, real reason to suspect that, that Philippians was, was pieced together from other documents or that the, uh, the scribes were, were messing up, you know, in their efforts to copy the letter. Uh, and then I thought about this, uh, just kind of an example from everyday life that could be a possibility as to how that finally ended up uh, where it did. And it, it goes like this. Haven't we all uh, been on a phone conversation with somebody? You're talking on the phone, and, and you think things are wrapping up, so you say something like, okay, I, I should probably let you go now, or, uh, you know, it's, uh, I've got to go have dinner. And, and so you're getting ready to hang up, and then something else occurs to you, right? Oh, man, I forgot to tell you this. And the conversation uh, goes on. Well, this could very well have, have been what happened to Paul. You know, because he is, uh, he's dictating this letter. There's someone who is, who is writing down everything that he says. So Paul could very well have gotten to that point in, in his uh, dictation. And he thinks that, uh, that it's time to wrap it up. So he, he says, finally... And then it occurs to him, right? Oh, man, there's some important stuff I, I still want to talk about. And as we'll see, there, there is some important stuff that he still wanted to talk about. So, after that, the, the initial verse, Paul, Paul reminds his friends to rejoice in the Lord. The same thing that he had told them back in, in chapter 2. He, he points out that it's no trouble for him to, to repeat himself. And he wants them to know that even while he is in prison, he is finding ways to rejoice and to be, to be joyful. And if he can do it, they can do it as well. He, he's saying, you know, in effect, hey, if I can do it, you know, considering my circumstances, then you all should have no problem. And, and that's not to say that they can let their guard down and, and walk around on a, a pink cloud of joy. They need to be vigilant and, and to guard themselves against some very real threats uh, to their safety. And in verse 2, Paul addresses one of these threats by, by name. 
Well, it's actually names because he uses three different terms to refer to the same group of people. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, they are all referring to a group known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were heretics who who believed that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Uh, They would travel around to the Gentile churches and, and try to convince the believers that their salvation was incomplete and ineffective without circumcision. They insisted that circumcision was indispensable, uh, excuse me, was an indispensable condition in order to be justified in the eyes of God. In his commentary, F.F. F. Bruce uh, notes that it was, and I quote, conceivably part of a campaign to bring Paul's Gentile converts under the control of the, the church in Jerusalem, end quote. It's no secret that, that Paul emphasized the independence of the Gentile churches from Jerusalem, but his main objection, what really got under his skin, was that the insistence on circumcision undermined the gospel. See, the gospel proclaimed that God, in his grace, justified Jews and Gentiles alike based on faith alone. A faith that was completely apart from circumcision or any other legal requirements. Paul doesn't mince any words here. By by calling them evildoers, he's as good as saying that that they're doing the devil's work by subverting the, the faith of the Gentile believers. And when he calls them dogs, he was probably throwing their own words right back at them. And in doing so, it, it, it creates a, a vivid picture of, of dogs just kind of skulking and sneaking around the Gentile churches trying to recruit new members. There's no implication, however, that the Judaizers had, had yet to infiltrate the Philippian church. But Paul, he wasn't taking any chances, okay? He'd already dealt with these jokers when they had preached their false gospel to the church in Corinth. And he was being uh, aggressively proactive by forewarning his friends in Philippi. In verse 3, Paul delivers a statement that renders the question of circumcision almost laughably irrelevant. Uh, Paul says, we are the circumcision. We are. Are the circumcision. If we are worshiping by the, the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, then that is enough. There's no need for external signs whatsoever. In Colossians 2, Paul puts it this way In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. True circumcision, the circumcision of Christ, is a matter of inward purification and consecration. It has nothing to do with the flesh, both literally and in the larger sense, where, where uh, the flesh is meant to apply to virtually anything, apart from God, uh, that people will mistakenly put their trust in. So, don't trust the flesh. Uh, Paul can't seem to, to emphasize that point enough, so he indulges in a, in a little bit of humble bragging. 
He indulges in a little bit of humble bragging to to make his point. He wants the people to understand that out of all of them, if anyone had reason to have confidence in their own flesh, it was him. Paul had some very, very impressive credentials, and, and he lays it all out for them. He had been born from impeccable lineage, the tribe of Israel, uh, through the tribe of Benjamin, and he had been circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the Jewish laws and the customs. He refers to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, who, who studied the law so diligently that he eventually becomes a Pharisee. In the book of Acts, we can read that, that Paul was educated under Gamaliel. Well, that is like studying physics with Stephen Hawking. Gamaliel was the preeminent rabbi doctor, uh, and he presided over the highest court in Jerusalem. He was the first man to ever have been given the title of Rabban, which means master of rabbis. And when he died in 52 AD, his death was actually recorded in the Talmud, which is the body of Jewish laws and customs, Jewish civil laws and custom. And it was recorded with the following words. When Rabban Gamaliel the Elder died, regard for the Torah ceased, and purity and piety died. Wow. That was Paul's teacher. It's no wonder then that given the high level of instruction that he had received, that Paul's strict observance of the Jewish law had become a source of great pride for him. By his own estimation, he had achieved a state of righteousness that that would have rendered him blameless before God should his devotion ever have been called into question. Paul wasn't only just a great student, however. Uh, His type A tendencies were in full evidence when he turned his attention to the persecution of the early church. He became consumed with a desire to to eradicate this new movement that had a that had appeared on the scene a movement that as far as paul was concerned was nothing but blasphemy against his beloved religion a mortal man who claimed to be the son of god and and was performing miracles in his name this was way way too much for paul to deal with and he sets out uh, with a vengeance the book of acts again tells us that he was Uh, on his way to Damascus, he was near Damascus actually, when he encountered the risen Lord. He had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. Well, Damascus is 135 miles away from Jerusalem, and Paul, with with all his righteous zeal, uh, he was more than happy to make that journey on foot because he had heard that there might be some Christians there for him to arrest. Well, fortunately, for all of us, and for Paul, his journey had, had a much different ending that he, than he could ever have imagined. And his new life began right there on that lonely road. As a result of that counter, uh, excuse me, as a result of that encounter with Jesus, Paul's priorities were profoundly, profoundly altered. As he says in verse 7 and 8, whatever he had gained, he now counted as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. He now counted as lost for the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul hasn't been boasting to show off. 
He wants his friends to know that there is nothing in this world that compares to knowing Jesus. And we should know that too. There is nothing in this world that compares to to knowing Jesus. It doesn't matter how good of a family you came from or how religious you are. It doesn't even matter how well you know the scriptures or how good that you try to be. If you don't really know Jesus, then you have nothing. Anything that has been attained or can be attained in this life is no more than rubbish. It is trash to be discarded and thrown away in the pursuit of a relationship with Christ. No, Paul's not bragging. He's trying to encourage his friends and to help them realize something very important about following Jesus, and that is this. Don't get hung up on what you think is important and what you think that you will lose by choosing to follow Jesus. He's saying, look at me. I had it all, man, but I lost it. But there isn't a moment that goes by where I wouldn't do it all over again. I would do it again because he's worth it. Jesus Christ is worth it. Paul is absolutely certain that the righteousness that he thought he had attained through his observance of the law had been a sham. The true righteousness, a a righteousness that came from God, was attainable, but it it wasn't something that could be worked for. It was a gift. And in verse 9, Paul tells his friends how they can receive that gift. Faith in Christ is the key. And that faith is a gift from God. Faith is not a natural human response. Uh, Consider the following. Let's pretend that we're all back in 1903. Okay, I'm going to take a little trip back in time. It's 1903, and the world around us is changing in amazing ways. We can't believe that horses are being replaced by motorized carriages, and it's like, wow, will wonders ever cease? Well, let's take things a step further and and imagine that not only are we back in 1903, but we are now in North Carolina. We're in North Carolina. We're on a a hill just south of of Kitty Hawk. And there's two brothers there, Orville and Wilbur Wright. And and they're showing us their their latest and coolest invention, and they call it the flying machine. Well, they explain all the scientific principles on why they think it should fly, and And then they invite us to come on board for a ride. Well, how many of us would just climb on board for a ride? Would a scientific explanation be enough to convince us? Or the obvious enthusiasm of those two brothers? Would that be enough to convince you? Now, I know that there's always going to be those daredevil guys, you know, the bungee jumpers and the skydivers, who who wouldn't hesitate. They'd get right on board. But the vast majority of us would not want to be the first person to take a ride. That's just how we are wired. That is, that's part of our nature. We want proof. And in the absence of proof, we will uh, decline to take the risk. Thank you very much. So where is all this going, Jim? Uh, my point is, is that none of Paul's friends, and for that matter, none of us saw the empty tomb. None of them had encountered the risen Jesus, and yet 
presumably they had all heard the gospel and they had all been asked to place their faith in something that they had not seen with their own, with their own eyes. See, not everyone who hears the gospel will be given the faith to believe what they're hearing. And hearing is the first step. Listen to Paul from, from Romans 10 where he says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How does one go from simply hearing the gospel message to having faith in the gospel message? Well, I'm going to I'm going to let Paul answer that question again. This is from Ephesians 2. God gives us faith as a gift through which Christ's righteousness is credited to us. God gives us a gift, people. The ability to, be, to believe in, in things that we haven't seen and to trust in something that is far beyond, far beyond our understanding. As a result of that faith, God is able to credit us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, a righteousness that is simply unattainable through anything that we can try to do on our own. Think of all the hours that Paul must have spent studying the, the scriptures and observing every jot and tittle of the law, only to find out that he had been laboring in vain. Not only had he, he wasted time by engaging in behavior that he thought was righteous, but because of his actions against the early church, he ended up being less righteous than when he started. Can you imagine, though, just, just for a moment, the relief, the absolute relief that Paul must have felt when he was no longer under the law? A law that had become so bloated and so restrictive that it was nearly impossible to follow. See, the Pharisees, over the years, had taken the original Ten Commandments. We all know about the Ten Commandments. They had taken those original Ten Commandments and expanded them to over 600, 613 to be exact. There were 39 categories of, of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath. In addition to some obvious ones like plowing, cooking, uh, building, there were some less obvious ones like chain-stitching, unraveling, and extinguishing. Extinguishing. Man, I, I, I guess if your house caught on fire uh, on the Sabbath, you had better hope that there were some Gentiles on the fire department you know, when you made that call. The Pharisees taught uh, that a person shouldn't look into a mirror on the Sabbath because they might be tempted to pluck a gray hair. And, gray, and plucking that gray hair would be considered reaping, which was one of the prohibited 39 categories. It was okay, for example, to, to lead a donkey out of a stable, provided that you had put the saddle and the bridle on the animal the day before. And one, one final one here. It, it was okay to spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but you were not to spit directly into the dirt. See, the act of, of spitting directly into the dirt would, would create mud. And mud was mortar, right? And that was considered work. And this is a quick note here. That, that mud prohibition, that's significant because of the story that, that we have probably all read in, in John 9, where Jesus heals a blind man 
by using mud. And the Pharisees accuse him of not keeping the Sabbath. Now, I know that that sounds a bit crazy uh, for us today, but that is exactly what happens when, when men take it upon themselves to determine what is and what isn't pleasing to God. Righteousness apart from the law was a game changer for Paul and for us. Realizing that his belief in Jesus was giving him everything that he had ever wanted and more completely transformed how Paul lived his life. When he was a Pharisee, Paul was totally unconcerned about anyone else. His efforts to be righteous were between him and God, and they didn't require him to consider the needs of others at all. But Jesus changed all of that. Paul Paul stopped living just for Paul, and Paul started living for Jesus Christ. And living for Christ meant living for others. In the final verses of our passage, Paul summarizes the new mission statement that has has been given to him. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings. Even if it meant that he would have to die, Paul was willing to carry out the mission because he was certain that the path would lead him to eternal life with his heavenly father. That feeling of certainty was was something that Paul did not have when he was living under the law. Uh, Although he could do his best to try and obey every every little detail, he would have been haunted. He would have been haunted by the possibility that he didn't measure up and that he hadn't done enough to earn God's favor. No matter how many times he he went to the temple and made sacrifices to atone for his sins, he would never have felt that that blessed assurance that that comes from having saving faith in Jesus Christ. That ironclad guarantee, uh, not only that his sins were forgiven, but that the righteousness of Jesus had been granted to him and that he would be able to stand before God blameless when that day came to pass. The effects of Paul's transformation are impossible to understate. The selfish Pharisee that was only concerned about his his own performance became the selfless evangelist and missionary. I I am reminded of a quote now from from the British author E.M. Forrester that, that goes like this. We must be willing, we must be willing to let go of the life we have planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us. Isn't that awesome? Paul had no idea what was in store for him, but he accepted the gift of faith and he he placed his life into the hands of the Lord. That simple act of obedience changed his life and it changed the world. To paraphrase uh, Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. In other words, if we haven't placed our faith in Jesus Christ, then we may as well still be under the law. We can try to be good and we can hope for the best, and that would be a a truly miserable way to live. 
Fortunately for us, God is so good, and he gives the very best gifts to his children. The gift of faith has allowed us to accept Christ as our Lord and Savior and to receive the the righteousness of God through him. That is huge, people, and and words are, well, they're they're so inadequate uh, to describe this unbelievable blessing that we have been granted. Our sins have, have been pardoned, and we've been invited to spend eternity with our Lord. How do we, how do we even begin to, to respond to such an amazing gift? Well, the natural starting point would be to say thank you. To acknowledge that, that great mercy that, that God has shown to us and to let that gratitude be expressed in, in our graciousness towards others. We have received the very same gift that Paul received, and we should respond in the very same way that he did. Last week, uh, Roger mentioned a quote from Jim Elliott that is, that is so appropriate, I would like to remind you of it today. Uh, Jim said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The gift of the gospel, although it's free, it carries a weight of responsibility. The responsibility to, to give it away to as many people as we can. Uh, sure, we can, we can try to keep it to ourselves, but, but that would be disobedient to the will of God. Sharing Jesus whenever and with whoever we can, it's just part of the deal. Uh, we look for those opportunities and And in between times, we show Jesus to the world through our words and and our actions. What we believe to to be important will will shape our place in the world, how we view ourselves and, and how the world views us. When we look at Paul, there is absolutely no question about the, the position that Jesus held in his life. Will our lives demonstrate a similar quality? What are some steps that that we can take in order to ensure that we are living in Christ and living for Christ? Well, I have a a couple of questions that we can ask ourselves that I I believe uh, will be helpful in that regard. First, we should ask ourselves if, if we're absolutely convinced that we have righteousness apart from the law. Let me explain. Over the past months, we have all faced the challenges of of not meeting together on Sunday. This has not been uh, by choice, and and for that reason, there there should be no guilt or shame that's attached to that reality. Not being able to meet has not affected our standing in the eyes of the Lord. It hasn't affected our standing one bit. You know, I've read some stories uh, about people who felt that they were not being, uh, I quote, good Christians by avoiding church gatherings during the lockdown. If anyone is truly in Christ, their relationship to God is not dependent on anything that they can do. And that includes going to church during a pandemic. Now, we all know that that under normal circumstances, meeting together is both biblical and necessary. But we are not under normal circumstances right now. 
If someone has decided to avoid social gatherings until a vaccine is available, then they should do so with the absolute assurance that God loves them and and cares for them just as much as he always has. Worshiping the Lord is meant to be a joyful experience, and it shouldn't be tainted with, with the worry over personal safety. Rest assured that, that God knows the desires of every heart and, and that he responds accordingly. The decision to, to stay home can even create positive effects beyond that individual. See, my, my mom and dad, uh, they're both in their 80s, and they're members of a, a big old Baptist church ba- back in Weatherford, Texas. Well, despite the fact that the the church has resumed Sunday services, mom and dad have elected to to worship from home uh, until a vaccine is made available. And and I'll tell you right now, I could not be happier. They are are taking this crisis seriously, and that's removed a, a huge weight from my shoulders. You know, 2020... I mean, honestly, 2020 has been bad enough already, and we certainly don't, don't need anything to happen to mom and dad. So let's move on to my second question, which is, are we counting everything? Are we counting everything as loss compared to knowing Jesus? Man, that, that's a whole sermon right there, but, but I will try to do my, my best to stay within my time constraints. Counting everything as loss requires us to examine our lives from a few different angles and ask a few more questions. Number one, are there still some things that are, that are pulling us away from Jesus? For example, maybe we're turning on CNN or, or Fox News in the morning instead of opening our Bibles. You know, like we used to do uh, before the world decided to go crazy. Perhaps our, our time on social media is carving a, a big gash in, in the time that, that we used to set aside for prayer and for waiting on the Lord. And next question, are, are we successfully resisting the temptations of old habits? When... Uh, we're hurting, when any of us are hurting, the most natural response is to stop the pain in the most expedient way possible. For some, this involved using chemicals of different types. For others, uh, pain relief may take the form of retail therapy. That's when you you go online and, and you buy stuff until you start to feel better. Well, whatever form these, these self-help strategies take, they all share some common traits. One, they don't always work. And two, when they do work, they don't last. The effect doesn't last. It wears off, and and oftentimes that, that person's left feeling even worse than before. The relief that Jesus offers, however, will always work, and, and it lasts forever. Amen? And finally, are there situations that we are still trying to work through on our own instead of getting down on our knees and asking for help? There is nothing 
absolutely nothing that we're ever going to experience that will separate us from the love of Jesus. That's a fact, friends. Absolute fact. I know that I've, I've said this before, but I, I don't think that I can ever say it enough. Jesus is loving us right now in the middle of a pandemic, and he wants to help us get through it. Not only to, to get through it, but to be better people when we're on the other side. Take every opportunity to, to talk about Take every opportunity to talk to Jesus about what you're going through. The scriptures promise that that if we draw near to God, he's going to draw near to us. See, I pray that, that all of us end up closer to our Lord than we have ever been as a result of what's going on in the world right now. Use this time. Use this time to, to put Jesus where he deserves to be at the very center of your life. Each of us brings our own unique set of distractions and and barriers uh, that can prevent us from experiencing the joy of knowing Jesus. We all have stuff that we don't need to hang on to. Stuff that we can throw into the garbage can and forget about. But there's also going to be things that require maintenance. Things that are going to require periodic visits from the Holy Spirit to keep them in check. Things that we're going to have to, sometimes on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, (laughs) minute-to-minute, on a daily basis, things that we have to keep turning over to the Lord. We've been given such a precious gift, a gift that allows us to put our faith and our trust in the Lord. We can approach God anywhere, at any time, because we've been clothed in the righteousness of his son. A righteousness that was impossible for us to attain on our own. That was made possible through our faith in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, good and gracious God, thank you for the gift of faith that has transformed our lives. No longer children of wrath, We have been adopted into your family as beloved sons and daughters of the Most High God. Lord, keep our hearts pure and our intentions honorable. Let everything that we do be a reflection of the grace and mercy that we have been shown. We pray that your Holy Spirit give us strength and wisdom as we strive to keep Jesus at the center of our lives. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Well, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be gracious unto each and every one of you. May the Lord turn his face and make it shine upon you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a wonderful week. I hope that you all are able to stay healthy and safe and joyful. I love you all. See you next time. Bye. Are you looking forward to the time we can meet together in church? 
see everybody, fellowship, worship, share communion together, where I think we all are. Really looking forward to that. As I'm saying this uh, now, we don't know when that will be. Hopefully it'll be soon. But uh, for the time being, we're meeting like this on the video. As you know, a key passage having to do with communion is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You all know that. There's three times in that chapter where it says when you come together or, or when you meet together. Uh, for the time being, we can't meet together, but we are able to share uh, communion uh, this way on video. Not exactly together, but uh, as best we can do right now. Um, and we still think of when we could do it together. But there's something else in that chapter that we must not overlook regarding communion. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That phrase, until he comes, reminds us of something that Jesus said at the Last Supper. First uh, Corinthians, of course, written by Paul after the all of the events of Christ's death and resurrection. Um, but the Last Supper is uh, in the Gospels, uh, different little parts of it in each of the Gospels. But in Matthew 26, words of Jesus at the Last Supper, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus was referring to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You read about that in the book of Revelation. And that's something we're really looking forward to. I mean, sure, we're looking forward to getting together, but getting forward with Jesus in heaven, marriage supper of the Lamb. That's reality, and that's something that we're looking forward to. I just got so excited, I got off my script. Communion looks back. It looks way, way back to the Old Testament. Uh, the Lord's Supper was a Passover meal, and you know that story way back from Exodus. I won't share that right now. It, of course, looks back to the words of Christ at the Last uh, Supper with his disciples before his sacrificial death. I say that, and I was just contemplating the cross uh, behind me, and uh, I'm so glad that it's there and that it's prominent. It's the meaning, the significance, one could contemplate for a long time. It's wonderful. Communion looks back uh, to the time of the actual historical Last Supper. That was the night before Jesus' death. Communion is also about the present. It's always about the present. Do this in remembrance of me, or continually do this in remembrance of me. Communion also looks forward to the future. And I'm not saying again the time we can meet together, which hopefully a few weeks or something like this, but uh, looks forward to a future maybe far away, may actually be sooner. Okay, I'm off script again. I'm just thinking, suppose Jesus came back before we met together. Would anybody be disappointed? I wouldn't. Okay, that's not in the notes, but it's a pretty exciting thought, and it's possible. Do I hear an amen? Yeah. I'm so far off my script. I love you guys, and I've done this enough times now, I'm not even going to say, hey, let's stop and start again. This is, this is a real life, okay? 
talking to a video machine, thinking of you people behind it. Communion reminds us of, let's pray. That's a, when you lose your words, pray is a good thing. We'll pray, and then we'll share it together, the Lord's Supper. Lord God, the, the wonderful truths involved in your sacrifice, your loving us and saving us, your body sacrificed, we think of in the bread, your, your blood poured out, that we could have life, that we could have forgiveness of sins, your suffering, How can something so profound be simple? A cup with juice, a piece of little unleavened bread. But how can something so simple be so incredibly profound? It was just beyond us, Father. Before we take these elements, it's, it's a, a good thing to examine ourselves and to confess. I always have a hard time when we're doing this publicly because that seems like something to do by yourself and right now I'm talking with a camera but if God brings things to mind which he often does we want to agree with him to confess is to agree with God but we also agree and we confess that God is holy that God alone is holy the one who forgives sins and how thankful we are, how thankful we are that we bring our sins to you and you're, you're faithful to forgive us. And then we fellowship with you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for that. Bless us as we take the bread and take the juice, knowing that they're just these tiny symbols, and yet they have this great, great uh, importance. And how we thank you for that, God. Our little crackers, that's pretty tiny. It's unleavened bread. You don't think of leavening much, but in Scripture, in the Old Testament, leaven represented sin. This does not have any leaven. It's symbolic. If you have taken communion other ways, or like, don't worry about that, but that's why these little crackers like that. They don't taste good. That's okay. This isn't about satisfying your appetite. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread. Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take the cup. Father, our words are so limited, but, but you know our hearts, Father. So I say thank you, and it's not a big enough word, but you know my heart and uh, the hearts of those that are listening in and praying with me. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for not leaving us 
Thank you for being the one that doesn't change even though everything around us has changed. Thank you for giving us a little bit of glimpse into the future, the, the future of marriage supper with you in heaven. <laughs> we don't know details, but that pretty easy to get excited just thinking of that. Oh, yes, we know for 2,000 years it hasn't happened, but we also know that it could be soon, sooner than we realize. Help us to live that way. Help us to live lives that honor you and bless you. Thank you for this reminder that we do all the time of taking the simple elements. Thank you, God, for, for dying on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I love